Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial Failure, and of Leadership from Below, How the Internet Generation Redefines the Workplace. For an overview, you can go to trondenheim.com books. At this stage, Futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors. And to check them out, go to futurized.org slash sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me, including how to book me for keynote speeches, please go to futurized.org slash store. We'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurized.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Bruce, how are you? Welcome. Thank you. So I thought we would chat about investing in uh, the era of climate change. And that's uh, a topic you have just written a book about. So it must be something you talk about quite a bit these days. It is. I've been working on climate change for about 20 years now, uh, first in business and now as an academic. And these days I talk about it a lot. It's a, it's a very uh, popular topic, let's say. Well, so I've been digging in your background, and you you, you got a, a, a BCom, which I'm assuming is communications, from Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, uh, in Canada. Is that where you hail from? Uh, I do hail from Canada, though I will say a BCom is actually a Bachelor in Commerce, which is oh, a right. Canadian interpretation of business. <laughs> I do. I, I was born in Montreal, and I, I grew up in, in Canada, but left after college. There you go. See, we corrected me me already. Communications, I thought. So, and then you know, you you did make your way to the United States, uh, MBA from Harvard Business School, and then you went to New York, I believe. Worked twelve years financial services, Lehman Brothers, and then became CEO of Eco Securities Group uh, on uh, greenhouse gas emission projects that was uh, acquired by J.P. Morgan, and then you became an academic. Professor of Practice, Columbia Business School, and you've written at least two books that I know about, um, one on renewable energy and one on investing, uh, you know, on, on, on climate change. How, how did this whole thing happen? You, you went from, well, now I understand not communication, but you went, you know, commerce, I understand, business, finance, um, I, I academia, the whole, the whole all planned out. Yeah, all planned as a young boy. I had it all. I had the vision. Uh, no. <laughs> in fact, one of the things I, I tell my students when we, when we talk about careers is, is don't, don't make a plan because it, it'll, never, it'll never turn out the way you think it will. 
it'll turn out much better, but differently. And in my case, uh, I, I got that BCom because I really wanted to be in business. I actually first went to uh, Tokyo, Japan. I lived in, in Tokyo for four years uh, working in, in business. I worked for a Japanese bank. And then, as you mentioned, I actually worked for Lehman Brothers over there. Hmm. Uh, then I moved to the U.S. and got, got my, uh, my MBA and went back into finance. I was fascinated by business, by finance. That's what I wanted to do. And that's what I did. Uh, uh, but I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And hmm. so after a couple of years at Lehman Brothers, I had the opportunity to join a, a colleague there who left to start up a little, uh, a little financial boutique. So I joined him. And that was my first entrepreneurial experience. And after a number of years with his backing, I started a second company uh, that did electronic trading solutions. And that company was acquired by a big financial firm here in New York. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do next, actually. I was sort of a little bit of a loss. I, I'd had some success. And I also realized, um, you know, maybe there's a little more to life. As much as I enjoy being an entrepreneur, I enjoyed finance, enjoyed making money. And I talked to some people. And actually, introduction to my brother. My brother has been involved in climate change uh, through his entire career. He had far more vision than I did. Actually, what I would say is he was far more interested in environmental issues than I was. Hmm. Once I had no interest in environmental issues <laughs> when I was a young man. And he introduced me to a number of people. And one of those uh, folks they introduced me to had started one of the world's first carbon credit companies. This is back in 2001. Hmm. Uh, nobody knew what a carbon credit was. I, I did not. And I met him and his colleagues and I had this aha moment. I was like, this is incredible. You can apply finance. You can apply investment skills to an environmental problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't understand how these things were connected. And I, and, I, and I saw that vision and that became really exciting to me. And then I was re-energized to jump back into business. But in this case, a business that addressed climate change. So in 2002, I joined this company. So they brought me in as CEO to help to, to, to mm-hmm. run it and grow it. And that became very successful. We actually raised capital, went public in 2005. Well, it's funny how you tell the story because I now remember from your book that you credit your brother, Eric, is it right, with uh, yeah, proofreading your book? Very carefully, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more than proofreading it, though it, it helped a lot because he's, he's, he's an expert in the sector. Um, you know, the real joy of him, of course, is being my brother, is we talk about climate change and the work we're doing in it, which is very close to this point, pretty much every week. And it's, wow. I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to have a sibling that I can have a conversation with. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I also know that you bike. That's uh, another trait of uh, of a risk taker in New York, <laughs> at least. <laughs> you know, that's what people think in Toronto. I, 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 it's, it's, it's not. Uh, they're, they're, I'm sure there's plenty of risks I've taken in my life, but it's not biking in New York City. And the reason I say that is, to the surprise, many people don't live here. This city is incredible for biking. Uh, there's more than 200 miles of bike trails to the city. Uh, the paths are very well maintained and laid out and, and safe. And and you know the biggest attribute of it, best attribute, is it's it's flat. It's a pretty flat city. Right. Uh, for bike, I bike up the Hudson River along a bike path every day to work to Columbia. It's about a seven or eight mile bike ride. Great way to start the day and end the day. 
Well, and the reason I wanted to, uh, or was happy that we could start with, with, with biking is that I, I think that, you know, investing, like you said, and climate is, is one sort of new angle that we obviously are going to explore here, but the experience of nature or being outside, it's not equally shared. And I would just imagine that not every financial trader on Wall Street has this biking habit, because if they did, one would perhaps think that climate had been an even bigger investment topic much earlier, wouldn't you say? I agree, with a caveat. With a caveat, and I agree okay. in the sense that certainly exposure to, to to nature, exposure to the beauty of being outside. Uh, if you see this poster of my shoulder of you know planet Earth, <laughs> you know it's up there for a reason. I, I really, uh, I really think it's important. But the caveat is, so when I got involved in this back in two thousand two, so it's now two decades ago, and at that time I started working this. This, this firm, and we were looking at investing in climate solutions, and we did that. But here's the reality. While two decades ago, we understood the climate science already quite well. And the climate science today is much more advanced, but you know, we knew what the, the issue was, what had to be done to reduce emissions. There was almost nothing to invest in. There were very few climate solutions. So you could say, well, investors have been pretty slow to get, you know, to get this. And I, I think that's true. But the fact is there wasn't much to invest in until pretty recently. An example I used to be solar power. There was, there was, the solar was really expensive and really tiny and, and not a really viable solution until pretty recently. So that's, that's the big change that actually has made the timing of this book, I think, far more relevant than it would have been, say, if I'd written it a decade ago. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I wanted actually uh, uh, to ask you that because there's, you know, clean tech 1.0, clean tech 2.0, if if we start there for for one, you know what is the big difference? I mean, one thing is there's more to invest in. So then, that I guess means that the sector in your mind is is more mature. So there's a more diversified set of assets. There's perhaps better startups, more startups. Um, but partly, it's you know, it, it, I mean, at the end of the day, right? A lot of people talk about startups, but the kind, and you make this point in both of your books, because I read them almost cover to cover here, and, and you make the point that in, in many of these markets, and we'll get into uh, renewables for, for, for one, uh, you say, you know, it's actually, once you get the market going, they're very attractive markets. They're just a very hard startup cost, capital yeah. construction cost. That's right. That's right. And there, there, there are challenges to decarbonization, investing in those solutions that you know, we have to recognize. I think that's one of the difference between you know, climate tech 1.0 and 2.0, or however you want to describe it, in the sense that the first time around, this was 2007, 8, in that area, a lot, of, a lot of money was lost. It was lost partly because investors didn't really understand the challenges some of the areas. The first challenge is, you know, we're talking most about physical products. We, we think about it this way. We spent 300 years building a global economy that, on a certain extent, is, is pretty successful, right? The average human today is about 50 times as prosperous as the average human pre-industrial revolution. For most of the world's people, it's, 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 it's been a good thing, industrialization. But, of course, there's a catch. The catch is it's unsustainable. It's unsustainable because it's based on emitting greenhouse gases and if we keep going, well, we know where it had leads. So we've got about 30 years to decarbonize. We literally have to rebuild the global economy. And I emphasize that word build because we're talking physical products. This is not software. This is not apps. This is not things that frankly for investors are a lot easier to, to back. And so that's the first thing I think invest, investors have realized that they have to approach these 
these challenges that, that, and opportunities in, in a somewhat different way than many other investments they look at. But the second point I make, and, and come back to this earlier issue of climate solutions, it's really a question for investors. There's, there's, there's two groups. One is those technologies that are commercially competitive in that scale. When I say commercially competitive, they're able to replace the polluting products so that the consumer has an equally good or sometimes better product. So solar and wind, it's cost competitive today. In fact, most of the world, it is the cheapest form of power generation, and it's at scale. Electric vehicles, not yet cost uh, competitive, but a better product. Most people who drive an EV prefer an EV. It handles, it's more fun, right, to drive. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, an industry that's at scale. So for an investor's perspective, that's very clear that the attributes and the ability to invest. And those two products together, you get us to about 50% of the decarbonization we need. We got to scale them globally. There's still a long ways to go, but those two technologies and the energy storage that goes with those, those, those technologies gets about halfway there. Mm -hmm. The other group of technologies, which I also write about in the book, are not yet commercially competitive, and they're definitely not yet scale. We're talking about things like green hydrogen, direct air capture, other carbon capture technologies, and those investors have to approach those technologies very differently. This is early stage, pretty risky. Yeah. with tremendous potential. Uh, and so that's sort of a different set of considerations on the investment side. But I guess just for me, coming back to who is going to pay these sort of enormous differences uh, you know, in startup costs or th these enormous startup costs, you, you do um, comment on a couple of things. You say that government, at least when you get into your book a little bit, you, you comment on the role of government, right? So incentives, and there you, you point out these various incentives, the command and control ones, and then the, the more market-related ones. And they they have to be there. And you say, but you say that you've never observed them to be perfect because if you're setting a price, for example, inadvertently a government will set some sort of price and then you're kind of captured to that price. So it may have been high, it may have been low, but it certainly isn't perfect because you aren't the market. That's right. How does that all work, and how you know how should we think around the, the role of government in, in these markets? Yeah. So first of all, and I, I say this, it's it's cribbing a, 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 someone else's comment, but perfect is the enemy of the good, right? And if we look at government, and say you need a perfect policy, we're wasting our time. We shouldn't we should be going that way. The role of government policy is to stimulate investment in these technologies to do what's what we call a virtuous cycle, which I write about in the book, which is you start to drive demand for the product because to get the price down, that subsidy or, or some other mechanism, right? Could be a price on carbon or, 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 or the like. Once price comes down, product, you know, demand goes up, production goes up, and then the learning curve that's underlying most of these technologies takes effect and you start to get the market to decrease the price mm -hmm. and it starts to catch on. So the role of the government, first of all, is to get that whole thing started. Without the government, most of these things don't start. And by the way, this is True for many technologies, not just decarbonization, right? That's what the government's there for initially. Mm -hmm. The government's role is not there to subsidize forever. It's there to get, get it started. And in that sense, it's very effective. And here we also have the issue of, um, and this is where climate change is unique and challenging, which is the international aspect of it, right? And this, this is the ultimate challenge because, you know, our other, our, our other challenges in life, whether it's, should we grow enough food or we have housing or health? They're local challenges. And as countries or 
regions or cities, we address those locally. Climate's different. Yeah, I, I was reflecting on that when I was reading about, I think this was in your renewable book, but you were pointing to the observation that banks uh, were called the pillar of Britain's industrial edifice, and they were providing a lot of the capital, certainly in Britain, for the Industrial Revolution. And I was reflecting on this, you know, why can't they play this role for the energy transition? And I'm curious to your point, is it because you know, after all of this, the Industrial Revolution was very local. You were talking right. about investing in local factories, providing for local people that you would see, uh, you know, for 40 years. And, and, and these were uh, sort of anchor institutions in the community. So if you found a local bank that had some money, yes, of course, it might be risky, but they would look at the factory, they would see everything, they would know everybody that they were investing in. Climate is different. But on the other hand, you, you do need the same kind of money. Yeah. How are we, how are we going to get there? And is that, is that happening in your mind? Yeah. So uh, first of all, it is happening. And again, with a caveat, I'll get to it in a minute. In other words, in the U.S., in Europe, uh, to a great extent, China, even in India, the capital is there and is being invested. And the reason for that simply is because the investment opportunities um, – exist, the risk adjusted returns are reasonable, and in many cases, government supports that really, really help, like the Inflation Reduction Act. Where the capital is unavailable, or not nearly where it needs to be at the scale, is in the lesser developed countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and some other uh, lesser developed countries. And that challenge is less around where the climate solutions and more the other challenges that come with investing in many of those regions and countries. You mean the yeah, risks inherent? Risk, yeah, yeah. And, and there's a really important uh, uh, issue here as well. It's an important issue, important challenge. I mentioned a few, month, a few minutes ago that solar and wind are the cheapest form of power and electric vehicles are tremendously effective form of transportation, energy storage is now getting cheaper and so on. If you're willing to make a long-term investment. Solar is cheap. <laughs> over a 30-year period. So when you invest today, you have free power for 30 years, free in the sense of the power, and so on. However, making long-term investments in some parts of the world is either uh, that capital either doesn't exist or more often exists at a very, very high interest rate. The cost of capital is really high. And if you apply a high cost of capital to any of these technologies, the cost of that technology is, is very high. It just, it just The numbers just don't work. So, for example, in many countries, why you know why do they burn coal instead of solar? For example, when we know that solar is cheaper, because over a short period of time, over five or ten years, coal is still cheaper, and that's where governments have a hard time uh, reducing those risks, uh, and that's where multilateral institutions at the World Bank and others step in. And I talked a little bit about blended finance in the book. It's, it's it's more of a uh, you know it's more of a U.S. focused book than international. Blended finance can address that, but it's the, we're very early days in that, and really not doing a good job of, of capital flow in those countries. So, if you were to map out the kinds of capital, because we've talked a little bit about the various technologies, so renewables, electric vehicles, and then the more ambitious ones like storage and and hydrogen. And, and removal, carbon removal. But in terms of the financial instruments, yeah, I, I thought that you had a 
pretty neat set of descriptions of the various vehicles that now does exist. Can can you just line them up a little bit? So, I mean, venture capital, sure. you know, arguably wasn't really there. Now it's 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 coming online, I guess. But that's just one type of capital. ETF, so you know, more like private equity instruments. Can you can you kind of outline the the types of capital that you would say now are primed for contributing to climate investments? Yeah, and let me let me um, come at that from a slightly different angle, if, if you don't mind, Sean, in the sense that the types of capital, whether it's you know venture capital, private equity, fixing, and so on, there's a role for every type of capital. The mm. question. Um, is what are the strategies that those asset managers, those investors use to put that capital to work? And what I outlined in the book is there's five strategies. I want to spend too, too long on each one. We spend a lot of time on this on this one issue. But you know, the first strategy is kind of the obvious one, which is no matter what sector you're investing in, is risk management. Mm-hmm. So you look at climate change, there's a lot of risk that comes with climate change. The obvious risk is the physical risks, you know, the risk of rising seas, increasing heat, and so on. These are very serious risk and now manifesting themselves. But in fact, for investors and businesses, the greater risk is the transition risk. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that as we decarbonize the global economy, for business, everything's going to change and some businesses are going to disappear and other businesses are going to find opportunities and challenges. So those transition risks are really a, a big deal. And so investors who are, you know, if you're investing in property, you want to know whether or not that property is at risk from, from physical changes. If you're investing in business, you want to know if it's a risk transition. So that risk uh, lens is used by a lot of investors today. The second strategy is one that's uh, used by a narrow slice of investors, but a very passionate group, and that's the strategy of divestment. It's saying, look, there are certain sectors of the economy, particularly fossil fuel, oil and gas, coal, that are the primary contributors here. And my strategy is I want to have nothing to do with them. I don't want to hold those assets. I don't want to hold those shares. I'm going to divest those shares. It's very popular with uh, university endowments, uh, with some pension funds and, and the like. The problem with divestment is, as we said a few minutes ago, um, we don't we need investment. <laughs> so divestment by virtue is not investing, right? What divestment does is aligns your personal values with your investment. And that's really important, right? I think it's important we deliver our values. I certainly believe in that. But divestment doesn't actually solve climate change. Right, right. Uh, well, there's another issue also, though, I think that um, it is, and you were onto this, uh, or you at least state that in your book, I mean, this, at least in some economists, is still a contentious issue. So, for example, in the U.S., these ETFs, uh, these exchange-traded funds, you know, arguably have contributed a lot to the phenomenon of operationalizing ESG or this notion that we're now starting to put principles into practice and there's ways that you can sort of describe at least various funds, Morningstar funds and stuff, right? So there's trillions now in these funds, but that was in a political climate that was supporting this kind of direction. Now, if you get to a different climate, which says we are we think these priorities are questionable. I mean, yeah. under more regulatory scrutiny, anything falls apart. So the question is, you know, can all of these uh, sort of very ambitious divestment uh, type strategies stand up in any political climate? Yeah. And this, the ESG is, is actually the third. So divestment is like, I'm not going to invest. ESG is sort of the flip side of that. I'm going to invest, but when I do so, I'm going to consider these factors, right? So the good news is, okay, now we're, now we're investing. But now we have a different issue, 
which is, you point out, you know, are there political pressures on ESG? Um, but the other issue is actually, does it help us address climate change? So investors who are focused on ESG today, and, and obviously some of the big funds like BlackRock have been in the news a lot. And they're in the news because on the one hand, they're getting pressure from primarily Republican-led uh, state governments who are politically uh, unhappy about the actions of companies who are not investing in, say, fossil fuel businesses. They're also getting pressure on the other side of the political spectrum for not doing enough. For example, here in New York State, uh, the, the, the uh, control of the pension fund here has been criticizing BlackRock and others for investing in fossil fuel companies. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. BlackRock has not walked away from all the investments. What they've said, and, and, and this is important, ESG is a really simple concept, actually. Um, it just, it's become really muddied in these, these sort of political battles that are now going on. It's a simple concept. It says, look, if you're going to invest in an asset, you're going to do traditional investment analysis. That is, you're going to you know, read financial statements. You're going to look at the management. You're going to look at the competitors. You know, you're going to sort of evaluate that, that investment and say, well, is it, a, is it a good value? And if yes, you, you make the investment. And all ESG says is when you do that analysis, you should consider a few additional things. On top of all the work you're doing, you should consider environmental factors. Like, for example, if you're investing in real estate, probably a good idea to sort of understand whether climate change is going to affect that real estate. If you're buying real estate, you probably want to know whether it's going to flood in the future more than it has in the past. That might affect your value and so on. That's all ESG is. Understand those additional factors and bring that into your analysis. And as a result of those factors, you might change your decisions to buy or sell assets. But it's gotten really muddy. And it's gotten muddy in the sense that on one side of the political spectrum, they're saying you know, it's woke capitalism. Um, in fact, it's capitalism, pure and simple, right? It's I'm an investor and I'm just going to be a smart investor. And there's some, some research, uh, academic research, that suggests that using ESG actually does make you a smarter investor. You outperform the market if you're really good at it. But the problem with ESG, actually, I, I do mention this in the book, is it's not the, the woke capitalism part of it because it's, it's not woke capitalism. The problem is it also doesn't do a lot to address climate change. Right. It also does not really invest in climate solutions. It simply says, gosh, I got to be aware of, of the risk of climate change. Yeah. Which brings to the, 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 the next strategy, the, the fourth strategy, which is what I call thematic impact investing, which is saying, look, I understand climate change is coming. I understand we need to invest capital. I want to be a good investor. Mm -hmm. What sectors of the economy and what businesses in those sectors can I invest in that are going to help us address this? And a classic example is I'm going to invest in renewable energy. You know, if we invest more capital in renewables, wind and solar, that helps decarbonize. That helps us avoid catastrophic climate change. And it can be a pretty good risk-adjusted investment. So that's, we're getting a lot more capital now flowing into these thematic sectors. Hmm. And you can do that through, you know, private equity. You can do that through public equity markets. You can do that through buying bonds and fixed income. There's a number of different ways to do that. And that's, that's where we're seeing, you know, real capital flowing to climate solutions. And then there's a fifth category because as much as capital is flowing as climate solutions, 
some solutions are out there are simply they're too risky. They're too long term for your typical investor to take on. They're too complex. And for any capital, that's where the investment manager is a fiduciary. In other words, they're responsible for maximizing risk-adjusted returns. For example, anyone who manages a pension fund, you have to get a decent return on that fund. Otherwise, when people retire 20 years from now, you know, it's not going to be assets for them. So they have a heavier responsibility. They can invest in climate solutions that are just too risky and way out there. And so this fifth category we call this impact first. And this is a strategy that says, look, I know climate change is real. I'm really concerned about it. And I am willing to take additional risk or lower returns to invest in things because I think it's important. And the people who do this, the people who can do this, are those who are very wealthy. And in the book I write about Bill Gates, he's a classic uh, impact first investor. He's making 20-year or longer investments. Uh, you can say bets because they really are kind of bets in businesses that um, may never have a payoff. He might, and he's put a billion dollars or more into this um, because he can. <laughs> he's very wealthy. Um, and what's what's interesting about that is, first of all, he might actually make a lot of money. <laughs> Some of these companies that he's backing might ultimately turn out to be incredibly successful companies. But your typical investor today just can't take that much risk. And the second thing I would say is, if even one or two of his companies is successful, it will make a difference to avoiding catastrophic climate change because these companies are really important to this next stage of products of climate solutions that we need to decarbonize. Hmm. So that, that's a whole range of strategies. And what I try to communicate in the book is there's no right one. Right investors, depending on their individuals or institutions, depending on what their responsibilities are, depending on where they are geographically, should pick one or more of these strategies. And what I say is pick it and stick with it. <laughs> Don't just sort of dabble around, be serious about it. Um, but there's no right one for any one individual. Just just figure out what's right for you. But Bruce, isn't there also a danger, uh, well, regardless of political flavor here, but that you uh, start looking at climate as, or at, at you know, the, these kinds of, investments uh as the only criteria mm -hmm. because and I think yeah there are like you said right investing is a complicated yeah. game there are many 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 factors here yeah. so how does one avoid then going into the trap of having ignored it as a factor yeah <laughs> and then going to the other side saying well this is now everything any it's it's the uh, the only thing that matters yeah the pendulum swings too much the other way right and um I think that is a trap and a, and, a, and a big mistake as well. Right? So ignoring it is, you know, it's like, you know, that's, that's just doesn't make any sense at all. This, this is very real and it's coming. It's going well, to that's becoming silly to, yeah, to I mean, it's, it's worse of course, but exactly. you know, you could also, even it is silliness. Like to yeah. ignore it is truly, you know, yeah. irrational silliness, but the, the, I'm talking about the other side, and which so is, oh, side, so we have taken it on board now. Yeah, but, the other side is almost equally silly. I would say, in other words, all the fundamental rules of investing still apply. Just because you're investing with, with a certain purpose, concerned about climate change, if you suddenly suspend the other rules of investing, you're going to do it very badly in life. They, well, and to the point, when this becomes popular, every entrepreneur will speak the language. Exactly. This language, right? And, and I guess we have a recent kind of crypto example in mind where, you know, so people just, oh, well, everything crypto is going to be, these people want to change the world. Well, yeah, 
perhaps, but you know, all kinds of flavors of people get into the game because there's so much money in the game. So exactly. now you've got to go back to fundamentals or no? Yeah. And so the thing to particularly to, to worry, not worry about, but be aware of when it comes to investing in sector is greenwashing. Okay. Yep. So greenwashing is simply when companies make promises about their plans that, that, that aren't real. And, and I believe there's two forms of greenwashing. The companies that do it intentionally, they know, you know, they're, 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 they're not being truthful about this. And investing in them from client perspectives is obviously a mistake because that will eventually come to light and it's not going to work out well. There are also companies that greenwash accidentally. What I mean by that is they sort of living in this wishful thinking that, you know, they're going to decarbonize quickly and it won't cost anything and it's all going to work out beautifully. And they don't understand the complexity of, of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and the challenges that come with those. And that doesn't work out too well either because they're making promises they're just not going to be able to keep either. So one of the things investors need to be aware, they, they need to avoid greenwashing. They need to avoid uh, getting sort of caught up in that hype of the excitement of, of doing this hmm. uh, and be pretty cold-eyed about what's what's realistic and what time frame. Hmm. Uh, and that, that's that's a real risk here. You have a whole chapter on best practices so that, uh, you know, these small little, avoiding these traps much surely go, goes into it. But what, yeah. what are some other things? I mean, if you're a young investment manager and want to do the right thing, uh, w- w- what is the right thing these days? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a balance between um, being very systematic systematic and evaluating the, the opportunities very carefully and not moving rationally and too fast and just saying, you know, well, we have to you know, suddenly throw, throw everything in, in this one bucket. At the same time, not moving too slowly because there is a risk of something which I read about in the book called a Minsky moment. And this happens when the market suddenly and pretty much the entire market at the same time reevaluates an asset class. Or sometimes it's almost the entire market. And the classic example of Minsky moment happened in you know, 2008, the financial crisis, when suddenly the whole subprime sector, which is a pretty big sector, was reevaluated. And it was plain to everybody, if you'd sort of looked at it and stood back, that there was, there was too much risk there. But suddenly that happened and asset values gapped down. And there's a potential here in certain sectors of the economy that that could happen around climate change, that suddenly the market reprices some of our assets because he you, you, the market suddenly recognizes more risk. It doesn't necessarily mean risk is manifest today. The market says, wow, there's more risk out there in the future. And remember that all asset prices are based on future expectations. Asset prices today are essentially a discounted cash flow of future uh, cash flows. That's, but that's could that happen to the overall petroleum economy, you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. No, no it certainly could. Now, in the reality, these are these easy to say and actually hard to do because if, you know if we look at the uh, the oil and gas economy today, fossil fuels today, in the past year, of course, those values have gone up, not down. So you can say, well, wait a minute. I thought you know it's very clear that the value of these things is going to go down. You just explain climate change is real, and you have to think long term and so on. And uh, I would stand by the fact that over the next thirty years, the value of most of that sector is going to decline as demand goes down. But like any asset class, as that demand changes, there's going to be a lot of volatility in the process. And what's happened in the last year is something that I don't think anybody could have foreseen, um, which is a war. And that's really what's made the difference. You know, people say, well, geez, the oil and gas sector was a mistake not to be invested in it. Well, if you were heavily invested in it a year ago, you essentially got lucky because the war began in Ukraine. Of course, unlucky for the entire world, especially for anyone. Uh, living in Ukraine. 
but in the sense that that is why fossil fuel prices have spiked. It's not because of growing demand or you know some change in, in the value of fossil fuels. Hmm. Uh, that's a temporary uh, situation, and hopefully, you know, it's quite temporary. We'll, we'll see. Um, the long-term trends. So it, the, 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 the advice to investors is have a long-term view, stick to the long-term, but don't be rash about those, those short-term price movements, which is hard for investors. It's hard to sort of stick to that long-term plan. Can we talk briefly about some of the the big sort of giga project uh, topics that that are still quite uncertain? You, uh, I mean, at least these two. So storage and hydrogen seem to be, uh, and and then you know, of course, the whole issue around capture. These are three areas, just to pick three. Then that you know, it is somewhat unclear what's going to happen. The, the the use case for storage would be immediate the moment it starts showing up on on the grid. Uh, but it's hard to get there. Yeah. Um, wh- wh- what should investors think uh, about when investing in, like you said, these Bill Gates type technologies? Is, is yeah. there a place there for the smaller investor? Well, first I would say storage that probably is in the sense that I think storage is pretty uh, clearly prices are coming down, scale is increasing, mostly because of the advances in lithium-ion technology and, and the use of batteries more generally, that there's so much scale in that sector. And, and again, there's short-term disruption, supply chain disruption at the moment are tremendous in that sector. But overall, um, it seems to get better every year. And there's no reason to think that that trend will continue. The learning curve will be applied to that product. So I think for investors, there is opportunity to just sort of keep investing in, in, in those declining costs for that sector. Green hydrogen and, dra- and direct air capture, totally different stories, right? So green hydrogen, I think there's opportunity to invest in uh, large companies that are sort of pivoting into this into this area. But the, the risk there is enormous because of two problems now. One is cost. Cost is much higher than you can. These come down about 5x to be competitive with, with, with fossil fuels. And missing infrastructure. There is no infrastructure for green hydrogen, and that means rebuilding everything, pipelines, terminals, uh, uh, storage systems, uh, vehicles that can use hydrogen and, and everything else, you know, uh, steel mills and, and everything else that, that could use it. So green hydrogen is one of those fascinating climate solutions because if we have cheap green hydrogen, um, that solves the sort of missing 15 to 25 percent of decarbonization that we don't have good solution for today. So it's like the missing piece. Yeah. Incredibly exciting and technically absolutely feasible. I mean, it's not, it's not like some mystery has to happen. It's very clear what needs to happen. Cut, get the price down and get the infrastructure out there. But those are those are both big challenges. And for the for the investor, that's taking a, a big big risk. To be honest, even for very large companies, they're all betting on different strategies around that. And then direct air capture. Uh, in this case, uh, you know, this is the, this is the holy grail, as we say, for for, for decarbonization. If you can pull CO two out of the atmosphere, you can solve our problem, right? We're putting. It just sounds too good to be true, though, right? It's and like, it is too good. It is too good to be true in the sense that bit of a fairy tale. It, well, it's wickedly expensive today. You know, a thousand dollars a ton. You know, put in that context, uh, you know, decarbonize a lot of the economy around ten, twenty dollars a ton, and it's not as scale. Not, you know, talking about not a scale, the, the, the projects today are teeny little drops in the bucket. It's not solving anything, but it's hard to see a path towards 
towards avoiding catastrophic climate change without some direct air caption. And the reason for that is, is simple, which is climate scientists inform us today that to avoid a warming of more than two degrees Celsius, which more than that is, is where we run into the risk of something real catastrophe is happening. We have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to zero within 30 to 50 years. Well, zero is a hard number. <laughs> it's a hard number because everything we do as humans emits greenhouse gases, even this conversation we're having, right, in a small way. So every, every, every activity. And while we can do amazing things to bring ourselves down from where we are today, it's almost impossible to get to zero for everything. So there's going to be some residual. Now, what the scientists tell us is you, don't, you have to get to net zero, which means, okay, if you're still emitting some, and you will, if you can have negative emissions and re remove some at the same time, these offset each other, and, and that does get us to zero. In fact, no model suggests that we get to zero without negative emissions. Well, there are many ways of doing negative emissions. One is just to plant trees, in other words, biomass through photosynthesis to cap capture CO2, but there's challenges around doing that. Uh, there's, there's a reason we, we, uh, we need land to grow food and things like this. Uh, there's some other ways of capturing CO2, and the ultimate way that what you describe as a fairy tale, and I say a holy grail, is to actually you know suck it out of the atmosphere. Do I think it's going to happen to solve climate? You know, is this our magic solution? No, no, I'm with you. I think that's a fairy tale. Do I think we might end up having to do some of it at the end of the day for that that last piece that we just can't do any other way? Um, yeah probably wherever we're going to end up at some point. And it might, hopefully it's not a thousand dollars a ton. It might be $200 a ton, but you know, price point that's painful, but, but actually bearable from an economic perspective. But so what that would indicate to me though, is that this is a giga project. If there ever was one and you need massive scientific improvement, you don't Absolutely. just need to say, Hey, there's five startups in it today. We're going to give them some money and have a go. It, this would seem to me to be a Manhattan project times 10. Exactly. This is a serious business. This yeah. is not yeah. something you can just. Yeah. yeah. And there's, and there's, there's, there's another hurdle just to throw it in there, which is one is, as you said, it's a science, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a serious business scientifically, like the technologies, the scale, gigaton scale. And who's going to pay for it? In other words, when, when you develop, you know, when, you, when the government says, well, we're going to help subsidize solar or electric vehicles, or even energy storage. Well, there's a value. There's a value exactly. stream. It's this value is the stream, yeah. Right? But where's the value stream in in exactly. DAC? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's that's another thing. Which you know there are mechanisms to do that, carbon markets and price caps and all these sort of things. But honestly, none of those none of those things is set up at this point to to really capture that value in, in a way mm. that you need for this, as, as you said, you get on scale. So yeah, I, I put that. It's, it's sort of the last thing I write about in the book as as a potential area of, of considering investment. Um, it's pretty far out there. So, Bruce, future outlook. Um, 10 years, 25 years, that would be net zero, ideally 50 years towards the latter end of the century. Where, um, where, where are we then? I mean, for, for some, right, who are investing, this 25 years is normal. That's, you know, my mortgage is 25 years. Right? Pension funds, 25 years, no, no sweat. That's, that's their deal. That's yeah. how, what they do. There are many real assets. There, are, and you point this out. Like you, you're investing in real estate, 
you know, thinking 25 years ahead, that's no problem. We, a lot of humans think 25 years ahead in many investments. We, we might do it on our own house. Yeah. So, but where are we going to be in 25 years yeah. with all these things? Yeah. And really the, 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 the question, the only question that really matters is will we avoid catastrophic climate change, right? What does our future look like? And the short answer is we can, but doesn't mean we will avoid and I say we can because, and I go through this in the book, the technologies, you know, we're halfway there. We do have 30 years. It's not a lot of time, but we can, we can uh, advance enough technologically to do that. And the, and, and the capital is there to rebuild the global economy. We are, we, are, uh, we have a great deal of, of, of available capital to do this. Uh, so we can decarbonize. Will we do it? That's much less certain. It's much less certain because, well, yes, many of us make 25-year investment decisions. They're into things that we've been making 25-year investment decisions for a long time. Right? Um, but, in fact, not that long. I mean, the 30-year mortgage is a relatively recent invention. It's, it's uh, probably a little more than my lifetime, right? We're very comfortable with that. We've been doing it a long time. Now we're saying let's redo everything into areas that people are not so comfortable with. These are new types of, of, of uh of investments and new ways of, of, of living. Will we make those changes fast enough is really a question. In other words, if you ask me, John, you know, will we decarbonize the global economy in 100 years? I'd say with certainty, it's no problem. It's, it's a non-issue. Will we do it in 30 years? That's a really short time frame. So you asked me a direct question, where will we be in 25 or 30 years? Yeah. I think we will be deep into decarbonization at that point. Um, we've been pretty slow to decarbonize, but not as slow as people think. Um, you know, most people think today that emissions just have kept going up, that we're making no progress at all. In fact, that's not, that's not true. Um, 2007 is when U.S. emissions peaked. U.S. emissions have been going down for 15 years. People think that's, no, no, wait a minute. We, we just keep getting worse every year. That's, that's not true. And economies like Germany, um, have dramatically decarbonized in the past uh, past couple of decades. I mean, they're decarbonized about forty they're about forty percent below their peak emissions. And meanwhile, the economy has grown a great deal. Now, what's happened in the last couple of years with COVID and, and the war in Ukraine has disrupted that slightly. But they've demonstrated many other countries too that you can grow your economy, create prosperity for your for your citizens, and decarbonize. I'm glad you said that because I I'm, I want to ask you about the realism of the voluntary degrowth thesis. Like there's this whole business now uh, of people who are saying, well, forget eco-modernism, forget high tech solving all of yeah. our problems, you know, Silicon Valley, you all got it wrong. It's not going to happen. We need to consume less, grow less yeah. and be happy with that. Yeah. And, Is it uh, necessary? Is it possible? So it's, piece of the solution but a really small piece and here's why first of all degrowth does not solve our problem our problem is we need to get to zero right zero emissions so if you go down a degrowth path you have to degrowth to zero essentially going back to you know sort Sto of living. stone age yeah like right, before sure, 1850 we're yeah. talking farms and uh mm -hmm. and uh, yeah like exactly. manual all, plows yeah yeah first of all very few people are going to do that especially those living in developing countries Right, eighty-nine percent of the world's population lives in a country that hasn't yet 
sort of reach the level of prosperity. Right. You're saying that that's not a deal they're going to be willing to take. They're never going to go. Why, why would they? It's, it's just unjust. It's not going to happen. So first of all, uh, you're not going to degrowth to zero. So that's the thing. Degrowth in the sense of can we continue to have shared prosperity with less consumption of wasteful products? Can we recycle more? Can we reduce our emissions and our production and so on? Can we simply be, you know, do we have to perhaps eat as much beef, for example? And I think the answer is absolutely that's that's an important part of this. Yeah, we're, we're incredibly wasteful in our lives in so many ways. But economic growth is really important to our societies, again, particularly for those who have not enjoyed economic growth in the past. And we can't ignore that. It's a, it's a real justice issue. So I don't see degrowth as, I see it as, a, you know, it's really more, but we could just be a little more efficient and that'll make a big difference. Um, we have to, we have to find the technology solutions to this. And sure, one can argue that we won't. That's a valid argument, but uh, to me, well, that's- but, but, but what this, this tells me is that what you're saying is we need this massive sort of tech transfer project towards global uh, and recapitalize global markets and uh, deploy these infrastructures, massive build-outs okay. in Africa and parts of Asia immediately because you could sit here in Western countries and decarbonize all you want, but you're saying the rest of the world will have the same dynamic. So right now, the US and Europe have 11% of the population, you're right, and yet they have obviously half of carbon emissions. Now, that could go down to 20% of the world's emission or something, 20% of what it is now, but the sum total emissions in many, many other countries, for them to go down there has to be a transfer of what there, there the has entire. To be transfer. Yeah, but I would, I would, I would clarify that by saying, and I agree with the premise. We have to, and and we are, but it's not a sort of developed versus developing. Although we've used that language uh, so far, I've been using those terms. We really need to think about each country or region separately. So you've right. got U.S. and Europe, and a couple other countries like like uh, say Australia and 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 uh, Japan, Canada. Then there's China. China's number one emitter by far at this point, but 30% of greenhouse gas emissions in China. What is happening in China? Well, China um, is, we think, very close to peak emissions at this point. And so while they unfortunately continue to burn a lot of coal, they are rapidly investing in renewables. And this is incredibly important because at the end of the day, once you build solar and wind, you will eventually always use solar and wind because your marginal operating cost is zero. Yeah, a lot of people are super worried about China and India or whatnot, but I I worry much more about countries much earlier on the uh, development ladder with with growing populations, which China actually is not an example. It's not, it's not, it's exactly exactly right. So there are uh, countries, again, primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa, where there's rapid growth in population. In fact, it's pretty much the only part of the world that has a growing population at this point, right? The well, India, I guess, is also growing, but India is just like that would be a whole podcast, right? India yeah. has its, <laughs> a lot of contradictions, but yeah, yeah, uh, a lot of contradictions, exactly. Yeah. And on climate, enormous contradictions as well in terms of again, enormous investment in renewables, but still you know heavy coal and so on. Enormous investment in electric vehicles, but still you know a lot of gasoline and so on. Uh, you're right. Whole podcast is pretty fascinating. Uh, situation um 
But to your point, yes, there has to be a transfer of technology. I think to a great extent, it's already happening. And sometimes not just, you know, in the direction we think, you know, U.S. to the world. I mean, for example, you, you mentioned India. The growth in two-wheeled and three-wheeled electric transport bikes and, and three-wheeled vehicles has been extraordinary in developing countries more than here. So it's now we're catching up with that. Um, so the transfer sometimes in two ways. But to address climate change, yes, technology transfer is a key part of this and capital transfer is a key part of this. Um, yeah. I, I think we're I think we're well on a way. And that's one of the things I was trying to point out in the book is um, there's an enormous amount we need to do, but to a certain extent, we don't need to suddenly change everything. We don't need to suddenly start. We need to do what we're doing much more, much greater scale, and much faster. And that building, build out scale challenge more than an R&D challenge. Yeah. Let me just give you one quick stat. So when I got involved in the sector 20 years ago, we started a conversation back in 2002. If you added up all the solar power on the planet, it, it was less than one gigawatt of power generation today or last year we built new solar of 150 gigawatts and this year will probably be and that's just in one year's construction so you think about that growth and project that out say another 10 or 20 years uh, there's no reason to think that in fact when it comes to renewables we will in fact replace that, that almost all our fossil fuel use uh, the international energy agency just week and a half ago issued a report that said they predicted that renewables would overtake coal by 2030 in power generation. Last week, they issued a new report and said we were wrong. It'll overtake coal in 2025. This is pretty remarkable. So we're, we're on the right path with some of these technologies, but it's not fast enough. It's really a time issue. And that's where investors come in, more capital, more quickly. Last question from me is simply this. Uh, there are some studies, there was one in Nature last week that talked about energy density and the fact that some of this renewable infrastructure will actually take up an enormous amount of space. And, you know, some people would say it's ugly. Uh, so, I mean, we're not really looking at a rosy, beautiful picture of nature as it was in the 1300s or something here. We're looking at a enormous infrastructure, a set of technologies, factories in different ways, yep. renewable, you know, solar panels everywhere. We're talking about windmills, you know, offshore uh, and probably, you know, nuclear and, and some new fusion facilities that are going to look pretty hideous, right? And they're everywhere. So we're not exactly creating our own paradise, even if we're solving carbon. We are not. We, I think anyone who says we're not living in the Anthropocene, the age of mankind, is, is uh, you know, is, is, is not, their eyes aren't open. This is the world we live in. And as long as there is, you know, what, 8 billion people today and there'll probably be 10 billion at some point when we probably peak, uh, that's going to be the case, right? This is the world we live in. What I will say, though, is what's going to, these technologies are going to change. So fossil fuels today is not pretty either, right? A lot of the things we do today are not pretty, and we're going to replace them by things that may or may not be considered less or more pretty. I have to think wind turbines are pretty attractive myself, but maybe I'm a little biased, right? But what we haven't spent a lot of time uh, looking at, and I don't touch on this really in the book because it's a whole new subject and a whole new hours podcast for us to get into, is 
what are the other attributes of that world that we may be living on beyond reducing greenhouse gas emissions and avoiding catastrophic climate change? What else comes with that? And let me just give you one example. Uh, asthma. There's a lot of people in the world who live with asthma primarily because of particulates in the air, and those particulates come from all the coal-burning industrial production that goes on around us. Uh, if you just remove all those particulates, maybe visually the world wouldn't look that much different, but it sure would feel differently when you took a breath of air. And there are many, many other attributes that come with being able to decarbonize that will probably lead to actually healthier, better futures for us. Um, so maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little, a little too optimistic on this point, but I think sometimes in the debate, what we lose beyond, we have to decarbonize is what kind of a world will we be living at that point? And I think when we get there, we're going to find it's actually a pretty nice place to be. Hmm. Well, I sure hope so. It's been fantastic to have this discussion with you, Bruce. Uh, you've clearly thought about the financial aspects of this and deeply engaged on you know on the uh, all, all matters of of this not just purely from a financial perspective thank you for for sharing with uh, with us and for explaining uh, this so well it's not a it's not an easy topic i'm sure you would agree it's a very complex field uh, personally I, I find it uh, incredibly interesting uh, and I really enjoy working on it and I really enjoy this conversation thanks very much Jeff. good Great. you have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me Trondarne Unheim futurist scholar and author if you are interested in my products or services feel free to check out futurized.org slash store where you can book a keynote speech become a sponsor or partner request a podcast swap or buy a few of my books such as Augmented Lean Health Tech Future Tech pandemic aftermath, disruption games, or leadership from below. If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.